everyone uh, this afternoon. Thank you so much for, for being here. This is the 25th installment of the annual winter lecture series at Northminster. Our first uh, annual winter lecture series was held in 1991. And uh, interestingly enough, the subject was church and state. So uh, it wasn't planned that way, but interestingly enough, our very first lecture offered by Peter Hobby, a professor at that time at Presbyterian College in Clinton, South Carolina, was uh, on essentially the same subject which this year's uh, uh, lecturer will be uh, helping us think. Uh, many of you know Holly Holman. Uh, we are so glad, Holly, that you are here. Welcome to Northminster uh, for the 2016 annual winter lecture. Um, Holly is the general counsel of the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty in Washington, D.C. Uh, it's a very appropriate uh, subject for us here at Northminster because in our orientation class every year, which is going on right now, it's a six-week uh, new member orientation class, uh, we give uh, one entire Sunday uh, to uh, Baptist history. We always start out by reminding everybody in the room that the original Baptist passion was not baptism by immersion. Uh, that became an important passion 30 or 40 years later. But in 1607, 1608, 1609, when we were getting going, our original Baptist passion was religious liberty. We were, we were being thrown in jail on a regular basis by King James, the, the one whose name is on the Bible. And uh, so we went to Amsterdam because we were looking for religious liberty but I'm not the lecturer, you are. So um, anyway, this is a great place and a wonderful context for you to come and help us think about religious liberty issues. And of course, all the better because uh, Holly Holman was a member of Northminster Baptist Church from 1986 when she joined with her parents and siblings. Harold and Joe, we're so glad you're here. Uh, through 2003. So uh, for a, a big portion of Holly's life, she was a member of this congregation, uh, which uh, is a source of great uh, pride, the good kind of pride uh, for all of us here at Northminster. Holly is a graduate of Wake Forest University and the University of Tennessee School of Law. In addition to her work at the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, she serves as an adjunct professor at the Georgetown University School of Law in Washington, D.C., where she helps teach a church and state course at the law school. Uh, she frequently consults with churches, agencies, and organizations on matters of religious liberty. Uh, she and her husband, Jay Smith, have two children, Holman, who is 14, and Jameson, who is 11. Uh, Holly, we are glad you are here. Welcome to Northminster, uh, which in this case means welcome home. Thank you so much, Chuck. So good to see all of you. This is this is really a, uh, an honor for me to be your lecturer and just a lot of fun to see all these familiar faces. I don't come home enough. That's what it's telling me. Um, thanks especially to the um, committee who put this together and all the work that you've done to prepare for that and the warm hospitality that uh, you've extended to me. I really appreciate it. Um, so let's get started. Um, since Chuck gave you a little background, we're going to do an upper-level seminar here. Um, but first of all, I want to tell a little story about perspective. Uh, a few years ago, we had a pretty significant earthquake in Washington, D.C. I don't know if some of y'all remember that. Um, the, the Capitol Dome's all a mess right now. It's kind of a, a, a because of that, and Washington Monument had some work done. And the earthquake came in the middle of a clear day in August. I was at work at the BJC's offices right on Capitol Hill. 
And it was pretty significant shake and obviously very unexpected. And after things uh, settled down and the minor assessment was um, kind of analyzed and we assessed the damage, it was really interesting to compare stories about people's experience. Um, as I said, I was in my office working away at the computer. This big shake happened. We got up, ran out, got up the rest of the staff. We ran down the three flights of stairs, just really pretty scared, ran outside. And, uh, Steady on the corner, and you know what we thought. We thought that there had been a terror attack. We were right there near the Capitol, and that's what we were thinking. It was reasonable in light of where we were. I learned later that our uh, friend and neighbor, who also is a construction worker, had been at our house doing a project that we had going on. And Mark spent his whole life around construction projects, and he knew everything that was going on in town, including a big project down the way. And he was in the house upstairs working, and he felt the shake, and things, a couple pictures fell down. And he knew immediately that the trucks at the other construction site had gone down the road and had probably shaken the street so bad that it had fallen to its foundation. It's not what happened, but that's what he thought had happened. And that was reasonable in light of his expectations and his experience in construction. So when I picked up my son from camp, I was interested in what happened for him. So Holman was 10 years old then. He was at day camp. And I asked him what happened and where he was. And he said, well, it was during the swimming part of the day. He goes, and I was underwater. I didn't know what happened. I didn't know anything that happened. I came up and heard all the whistles blowing. I thought somebody pooped in the pool. That was a reasonable expectation, <laughs> given his perspective. We, of course, all learned from reputable uh, sources later that made sense, and we had a common source of facts later through the news that this major uh, geological event had happened, and we all learned about that. And I tell this just to illustrate a common point that we see things differently based upon our particular base of knowledge and our experience, and that is certainly true about discussions of religious liberty. We can and should learn to understand where people are coming from, what their base of knowledge is, what their experiences have been. But apart from individual experiences, there are common matters of fact about what religious freedom means in America. The foundations of religious freedom in America were intentional, and they came out of the experience of our nation's founding generation. They were familiar with the establishment of religion. They knew firsthand what happens when you combine the coercive power of the state with the zeal and certainty of religious belief. And they intentionally crafted a very different arrangement for the relationship between the institutions of religion and government for this country. So we can disagree and debate, and we sometimes litigate about the boundaries, but there is an American tradition of religious liberty that has a firm foundation in history and in the law that we need to know. It involves principles like no religious test for office, no establishment of religion, free exercise, church autonomy, and certain rules about religion and public life. This lecture series is an important way to, important opportunity to engage with you as members of this congregation and others in this community to shore up our shared understanding of the American tradition of religious liberty, why as we as Christians should care and be engaged, and how we can continue to be known for our commitment to religious freedom in the very best of Baptist and American tradition. So that's what we're going to talk about. Put some notes up here to keep us keep us going here. First of all, what is the con our current context? Um, Chuck was uh, so easy on me, said that I could give titles, or I didn't have to give titles. Just come and talk about religious liberty, and I saw that there was a title about religious liberty in the world today. So, what is our current context? I say this is a very good time to shore up our understanding of religious liberty because there are a number of difficult challenges that we face. We're fighting about the parameters of religious freedom in a difficult context, particularly a context about the Affordable Care Act and objections to per certain parts of that, particularly those that have to do with the contraceptive mandate and employer health plans where there are sometimes religious objections. We're dealing with religious liberty in potential clashes between claims of religious rights on the one hand, and new rights established for same-sex marriage, as in the Supreme Court's recent Obergefell decision. So there's a lot of difficult challenges. And moreover, I think we are in a crisis of language right now. The term religious liberty is being used in narrow ways, in harmful ways, and in ways quite apart from the legal definition that guide our courts and the religious traditions that have informed them. 
Now note, I did not say we are in a crisis of religious liberty right now, at least not in America. We have challenges, but our challenges have been persistent. They're difficult, but please be aware, particularly during the political season, of those that cry that we are in a religious liberty crisis. A prominent Texas Baptist recently warned during this election season we should be aware of these claims. He actually said it was like a dog whistle. Only certain people could hear, and it meant certain code things, very different from the kind of religious liberty that we as Baptists and students of American history know. I think a more accurate view comes from a friend who's a law professor in Baltimore who said that most of our battles of religion are on the edges rather than the heart of religious liberty. The government's not locking up religious minorities and atheists and is not imposing or even encouraging a particular creed or practice. It's not that the questions we face at this moment are not serious. It's just rather if you can contrast America with other countries, you realize that a vast majority of Americans really do agree on the fundamentals of religious freedom. And that's where my work is every day. Uh, the mission of the Baptist Joint Committee is to defend and extend religious liberty for all. We do that championing our Baptist heritage and the principle that religion must be free, neither advanced nor inhibited by the government. As this statement recognizes, the work is for all, religious liberty for all, and it's informed by our faith and our history as Baptists. That builds in a certain responsibility and holds us accountable in the way we advocate, and that has helped us do this work for nearly 80 years now. Today we're supported by 15 member bodies as well as churches and individuals and foundations and we appreciate very much the support of this church and many of the individuals in this church as well as the various ways that people connected to this church have been involved in denominational life and various ways they've contributed to our work. So our role is really to be that historic Baptist voice because we come with this particular history and faith, um, and this faith story, our work should reflect that perspective. So what is the historic Baptist voice for religious freedom? It is one that says religious freedom is this idea that we often talk about as soul freedom, the basic right and responsibility of every person to be accountable to God, to respond directly to God without interference of clergy or civil authorities. We get to make up our own mind. We make up our own mind about religious questions and are accountable to God, not government. It's nice how that Baptist claim also fits well with those who don't come from that um, background because it's another way of saying there's an inherent right in humans, uh, a human right um, that lets people, that we respect other people and they can respect our, our position. Another part of that Baptist view of religious liberty leads me uh, to claim a great confidence in the message of, the, of Jesus. Our early Baptist uh, freedom fighters, particularly looking at the colonial era and uh, the evangelist and freedom fighter John Leland, always strikes me as, wow, why don't we speak out like that with confidence in our message in the public square, never needing the help of government to do the work of the church. It was colonial era Baptist John Leland, who advocated for religious freedom in the fight for disestablishment in Virginia, and he's credited with influencing James Madison, of course, the primary author of the First Amendment. The story of Virginia Baptists was especially informative for the founders of our country. Virginia, of course, was the most populous state and the home of many leaders. And one of the great things that Leland wrote in The Rights of Conscience Inalienable was this, let every man speak freely without fear, maintain the principles he believes, worship according to his faith, either one God, three gods, no God, or 20 gods, and let the government protect him in doing so. He's pretty confident. He said that the notion of a Christian commonwealth should be exploded forever. Government should protect every man in his thinking and speaking freely and see that he does not abuse anyone else. So it's that voice that we, we speak in that vision of religious liberty articulated by Baptists and others throughout history that is reflected in the American legal tradition of religious liberty and that we must continue to work for today. Our program assignment at the Baptist Joint Committee is to pursue that mission to advance religious liberty for all on Capitol Hill through monitoring legislation, advocating for or against legislation, following litigation, explaining the court cases and sometimes intervening in them, and education. 
We work to educate people and promote an understanding and appreciation of religious liberty and um, trying to establish these common matters of fact um, which are necessary in order to have an intelligent discussion with people from various perspectives. So I hope that you take advantage of the resources we provide. Um, I brought, you saw a copy of Report from the Capitol, our monthly newsletter. We have an updated and easy to navigate website with a daily blog that tells stories about religious freedom and um, the going around the country every day and it tracks certain legislation. Um, while I don't think we are in crisis, I will say that in our current political discourse that religious freedom is not well understood and we probably should double down on our education efforts. Thank you, Northminster, for doing that. <laughs> so with that background, let's talk about religious liberty as a legal tradition protected in the Constitution. Since you brought the general counsel here, that's what you get, right? Um, the Constitution starts by saying, the first thing the Constitution says about religious freedom is, I mentioned earlier, is no religious test for office. Article 6 establishes that. Uh, clearly, the founders had seen one way for church and state to be, to be together and decided to do something differently. It kind of blows up the idea that they planned on a Christian nation in any legal sense. And then, of course, as I talked about John Leland influencing James Madison, there was a push to have explicit protection against the church and state uh, experience that they had had uh, in the colonies, and that was to provide the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's where a lot of the work of religious freedom comes from, the Constitution, but also statutory uh, protections. And so I thought I'd just run down a couple of examples of the kind of work we do in promoting religious freedom in, those, in the, the context of uh, Congress and the courts. In Congress, we monitor any bill that has to do with church-state relations. Um, as you all know, uh, Congress is not doing a lot to move things forward, so that's in a way the good news on religious freedom because a lot of the ideas are pretty bad. Uh, um, but we still monitor them. It's important that you follow trends and you see when they pick up speed. Um, I had a really, I remember a, a conversation I had with a legislator from Mississippi one time and he, and he was somebody who was really uh, engaged in religious freedom and he said it was unfortunate that a lot of times he would see an idea presented in the Mississippi legislature which was a bad idea that had come from another state and it just hadn't caught up on the information yet to see that. And that's how ideas happen sometimes in these different political contexts. Uh, they get going, they pick up momentum, and even though it might look like no threat at first, they build up momentum after time and they get enacted and um, then bad things come from that. So um, we're gonna talk about, we can talk about the hard issues, but I thought I'd start off with some basic ones first to try to talk about um, free exercise and no establishment. So a couple of recent court cases that we've been involved in on the free exercise side. What does it mean, free exercise, anyway? Uh, it says Congress will make no law prohibiting the free exercise thereof, but it means more than prohibiting. Uh, it typically means that the government should not interfere in religious practice without a good reason, although we have different standards based upon court cases and then uh, interpret it one way and then statutes that are passed um, there's kind of been a, a sort of back and forth between Congress and the courts on the standards for free exercise. Most recently, we've been in two cases dealing with free exercise, both out of statutory law. Um, one, a uh, federal statute that protects the religious freedom rights of prisoners. And in a case out of Arkansas, a prisoner in a federal penitentiary who is um, Muslim wanted to grow a beard, but Arkansas Department of Corrections has a totally no beards policy. Just no beards. Um, the statute that he invoked is a statute that is part of a tradition of federal statutes to protect religious freedom that the Baptist Joint Committee has been very involved in helping to advocate for, leading a broad coalition to pass. Uh, this one's called the Religious uh, Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. This prisoner bought the case and went all the way to the Supreme Court and in that case we joined with a broad coalition of other groups to support the prisoner's right. And the reason we, the reason we did that is because there's a statute that actually provides some relief for prisoners. They don't have much freedom, but they have a modicum of religious freedom under this statute. And I think maybe I'll put the basic idea because it'll come back later.
provides that if someone can claim that a government action, in this case a no-beards policy, creates a substantial burden on the exercise of religion, the government has to justify that with a compelling interest, and they have to do that in a narrowly tailored way. Well, what's the interest the prison has for no beards? Safety. Beards are dangerous. <laughs> That's what Arkansas said. That's what Arkansas said. Um, and, he, and, and they're also confusing. They make people look different. You can shave it. I remember when my dad uh, shaved his mustache, uh, it was a big deal. You know, people didn't like that. When you, you have a mustache for a long time, people expect you to look like you have a mustache. So the state asserted those interests, but they didn't put any evidence for it. And this case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and eventually the court held in favor of the prisoner because it did not meet this kind of standard. It's a good case to show how these federal statutes have to, can be worked out to have a balancing of interest to support religious freedom. Another case I mentioned also dealing with a, um, Muslim, this time in the workplace, was brought under Title VII, the statute that requires that employers not discriminate based upon religion. And in the case, it told us what we probably know, which is that Muslims applying for work maybe have different burdens than we might. And uh, is a case dealing with whether or not a company could have a general look policy that would mean that you could not have a religious head covering. So those are examples of free exercise uh, cases that we've been involved in for, to protect the rights because we believe that free exercise sometimes means lifting burdens on, on religion, sometimes treating religion especially in a good way so that people have the same rights that um, everyone else has. Um, on the establishment side, maybe those are more familiar because they're uh, more controversial and exciting, but the BJC has been involved in cases opposing government-sponsored religious displays. Those are religious displays on government grounds. Um, and religious exercises in government meetings. Most recently, in a case called Greece v. Galloway out of uh, Greece, New York, we opposed the practice of having uh, prayer at local government meetings. These are direct democracy exercises where you go and face the people who will be making decisions about your, what you're asking for. And before that, before it begins, you not only stand and pledge together as you might as citizens of the same political unit, but you also are led in prayer. Many of the prayers are saying, let's rise, we pray together, that kind of, uh, that kind of exercise. And the court uh, decided by a 5-4 decision that they would uphold the, um, uphold the prayer practice. Uh, it was a very disappointing decision. The Baptist Rent Committee's brief was actually cited in the dissent showing the closest, that's what you call almost a win. You're cited, but on the wrong side of that. Um, but it's an example of the BJC standing up for the rights of all citizens and for your rights not to be tied to your religious standing. Your political rights in the community should not be tied to um, your, your participation in any kind of religious exercise. So those are, those are easy cases. <laughs> They're not always easy to explain, or, um, and they obviously involve a lot of different facts, and people come to them with different expectations and um, think, uh, thoughts about that. Um, but we find that wherever these cases arise, um, there's a need for voices of people who do not share the religious, the religious perspective of the plaintiffs, but to come to their aid to say that what we're standing for is principles for all. In the case of Greece v. Galloway, it was an atheist woman and a Jewish woman who came and uh, week after week, it was a Catholic, primarily Catholic prayers in the community they lived in. Um, obviously in the prisoner case, uh, it was a, a, a Muslim in Arkansas where it's not a large part of the prison population there. Um, and he was struggling to have his, his religion be viewed as well as uh, um, the Christians there. We're in a, uh, as I mentioned earlier, in a um, environment now of some more difficult issues. Um, and I want to talk about those to open up because I think they might illustrate some of what we're fighting about and what um, I was saying and Professor Meyer said about working out religious liberty on the, on the edges. Um, and as we do that, I, wanna, uh, I will also want to glance at what I understand uh, are some uh, examples from Mississippi. And then I want to open it up for questions. Have I said anything that might make you think about questions, things that you've experienced um, about religious liberty in America? Any questions? You got some questions? Just to follow up 
status in the country or awaiting deportation. We had an issue come up dealing with the Rastafarian religious group, and they requested to have their own religious services. We agreed. They requested to have their materials. We agreed. We set a time. We agreed. They asked to be issued ganja for the purposes of the service, and we said it ain't going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And they said, why not? And they said, it's a legal substance. They argued, and I know there's a lot, I think it's in the Southwest, that the prisons in the Southwest must provide peyote to the members of the Native American church if they meet. They have their allowed to bring in, and their shaman is allowed to bring it in. They argued, how come they can have peyote and we can't have marijuana? I said, good question. I said, I have absolutely no idea, but I will refer to our legal department. The legal department came back and said, are you out of your mind? I said, no, you go explain. It didn't end up being a federal battle, but it was a difficult one because how can't, you know, they had a leg to stand on. Well, and and I, I like that story. Well, I like, first of all, meeting a, a prison chaplain, so thank you for sharing that story. And I've heard other prison, I know other prison chaplains, and I've heard some of them talk about this area law, um, some quite thankfully and some not so much. It's, it's a big deal, and it's a, it can cause a lot of uh, hassles. And I understand that there are sometimes abuses, too. I mean, you're, you're in prison, and that's something to do, right, to, to file a lawsuit. But um, the answer in that is actually not as, as difficult because um, they, it really goes to this compelling interest. And obviously the government has a compelling interest in regulating drug use. And when it, and it, when it makes exceptions, it does so only based upon a lot of evidence about the use for that group. And typically, if there's a street use, <laughs> a use beyond outside of religion, it's probably not gonna, it's not gonna carry the day. So I didn't know if anyone in the legal department had actually had firsthand experience of trying the two substances, but my understanding is they're quite different. And there's not a, a much of a street market for, for peyote. That's right, that's right. And it's a Usually, the, actually, peyote is is um, protected in most states a, as part of a Native American right. So that's a good um, a good place to go from to talk about how do we protect um, how do we protect free exercise, which will take us into some controversies that you guys have been hearing about dealing with the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Has anybody ever heard of a RIFRA? A RIFRA? Yeah, everybody's not. So you guys had a big uh, RIFRA fight, I think, a year or two ago. Um, so the Baptist Joint Committee knows something about, uh, about RIFRA. And a few couple years ago, we were celebrating the 20th anniversary, I guess in 2013, um, and put together a program to educate people about the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, 20 years of protecting our first freedom, told the history, the story of why Congress passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, how we had standards under the Supreme Court's view of free exercise that had worked, that had actually provided a great level of free exercise protection that were then flattened um, in an opinion called uh, the Smith, Smith versus Employment Division versus Smith, written by Justice Scalia, which uh, it's been very interesting to listen to um, many people applaud Justice Scalia as a great justice, which you may be for some things, but when they said on religious freedom, there was a lot of evidence that that was not the case. In fact, he had done uh, great harm to religious freedom in that decision. In response, Congress passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, a little timeline of events here. If you want to know more, all of this is on a page on our website. A coalition of more than 60 different groups that were put together across the political and religious spectrum to pass this statute that said, if, there's a, if the government incidentally burns religion, we're not talking about targeting religion. If they target religion, the, bills, the law is likely to be overturned anyway. But if it incidentally burns religion, a general law, law that applies to everyone, but it has a particular burden on a religious group, and they can show that it's substantial, then the government has this high burden of showing that it is valid, that they have a strong interest worthy of harming someone's um, uh, religion. And so that's the... Uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act. It got a lot of attention um, a couple years ago as the Hobby Lobby case made it to the high court, and we can talk about that if you would like to. Um, and then we have seen a, um, a rush of states passing state Religious Freedom Restoration Acts. The first question nine lawyers ask is, 
why do you need a state RIFRA if you already have a federal RIFRA? Well, the court, um, after passing the, I'm sorry, after Congress passed the federal legislation, a few years later, the court said Congress had overreached and that high standard could not apply to the states, so states had to pass their own. Back then, no one was thinking about Hobby Lobby, nobody was thinking about the Affordable Care Act, contraceptive mandates, same-sex marriage, any of these things that seem to upset our culture so much and throw our, our thinking out the window. And as I said, it was a bipartisan, uh, highly regarded effort that was very, very popular. Uh, fast forward uh, 20 years, and there is a uh, national health care law passed, a president who is for some reason, quite polarizing, uh, a, um, a contraceptive mandate, which was um, put in as part of a regulatory process that was part of the emphasis on preventive health care, um, backed by experts on women's health that said contraceptive coverage is part of women's preventive health care. Um, and, and things started looking uh, different on, um, for some people about the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. At the same time, there were states that were finding a constitutional right for same-sex marriage. That also may have had something to do with people's concerns about the kind of religious freedom claims that, um, that people were making, and I think that that changed the uh, calculation a bit. So there are different ways we can talk about this, um, but one thing that I want to explain, because there's quite a bit of activity still in the courts and in, in your legislature, as well as other legislatures on this idea, is how, um, how statutes, how the law protects free exercise. We talked about the RIFRA standard. This is a, a general standard that applies to any case. So it applies to uh, a, a prisoner's claim, it applies to any claim. Anybody want to make a claim? Anybody have a religious, something burning their religion? Um, any plaintiff, regardless of what their religious perspective is, can um, bring that. There's another way that we provide exemptions to the law, and that is with specific exemptions. Those are ones where the government sees that there is a conflict, and a conflict that certain legislation would have, and they might go ahead and um, provide for a specific exemption for religious groups to try to meet the general government interest while also protecting uh, religious freedom there. These are both what you call permissive, okay? Not required. And that's because we want. We want, we want as much as we can get <laughs> religious liberty free exercise. But of course we also want to protect against Establishment clause violations. We don't want uh, someone's free exercise rights to go so far that the government's actually advancing religion. And we don't want free exercise claims to go so far that they interfere with and burden other important governmental interests, particularly the rights of third parties, which often will lead to an establishment clause violation. Not always, but often. And that's the debate that we're having right now in these contentious um, arenas. So just last week, we were filing a brief in a case that will be heard before the court uh, next month, the Zubik case, and it, talks, it gets to the boundary of um, what the government's required to do to accommodate religion. It's a case about, that comes out, again, after the Hobby Lobby case um, that, again, relates to the contraceptive mandate of the Affordable Care Act. And if you guys are interested in that, our brief is on the website, talking, uh, not talking points, Q&A about the contraceptive mandate, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which is being used to challenge um, part of that, um, as well as other um, information that helps explain the, the case. So, how, so I could tell you more specifically about the Zubik case, or we can talk about how these uh, issues come up also in the other hot button area of same-sex marriage. I um, brought I brought with me some of the kind of educational work we do on specific issues 
about the Supreme Court same-sex marriage rule and what you need to know now. This was in response to specific questions people were raising about religious freedom that were not necessarily involved in the case, but people said were. And so we got a lot of positive attention for that, and I hope that um, if you find yourself in conversations about that and worry, wonder about what the truth is, that you can look to us for that kind of um, helpful information. So I think what I'm telling you is that things are complex, but we have a role to continue to fight for religious freedom, for um, providing a general standard so people can make their claims, and that it's okay to not like someone's claim. That person may be you one day. Maybe our claim, your claim would be an unpopular one, but we need to have general standards that the courts can, um, can apply. We also are learning that uh, people have to learn that there are limits to what the government can accommodate and how they can provide exemptions. At issue, I'll say if I can, I should be able to do this since we just finished our brief, but in the Zubik case, we're really getting to the um, outer limits of accommodation. So quickly, the Hobby Lobby case was a corporate for-profit uh, employer that made a claim under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The owners of Hobby Lobby are uh, religious, closely held family, uh, uh, sorry, it's a closely held corporation started by a family who has strong objections to certain kinds of contraceptives that were part of the contraceptive mandates, some that they see as working as akin to abortion. So they objected to providing that kind of coverage in their employer health plans, and they brought an action under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. People went, what? Because they hadn't heard of, first of all, a corporation trying to exercise religious rights. Um, secondly, a corporation uh, yeah, having this kind of objection and whether or not that would be effective in uh, stopping an employee from having a health care benefit. Um, eventually, the court held in favor of Hobby Lobby, and they did so under this statute because Congress had provided an exemption for religious organizations that allowed employees to maintain their health benefits, to get the health benefits, without having the religious uh, um, employer pay for it. So it was kind of, a, it was kind of this great um, design that protected religious freedom without harming, employee, without harming employees. So the court mentioned that and said the government could clearly do that for Hobby Lobby. A year later, we have regulations that do that. The next case, though, came, the Zubik case, which is really the combination of seven circuit cases, um, all of which found for the government, but let me tell you how, how they came up, religious organizations that objected to this exemption that was provided for them. So these are religious organizations that object to certain kinds of contraceptives, and in order, they, in order to not pay for those kinds of contraceptives, they have to fill out a form and tell the government or their insurance company that they object. And then the government goes through the secular insurance companies to provide the employee the health benefit. It's a win-win. That's what the Hobby Lobby Court said. In Zubik, however, these religious organizations are saying, no, they still are being complicit in, um, they are being complicit in the use of these contraceptives. And so they, again, call on the Religious Freedom Restoration Act to try to overturn this accommodation. So this put the BJC on the government side. Very rare for us not to be on the side of the religious claimant and defending the right to challenge laws based upon the, the uh, standard that they should have the chance to, provide, to, to exercise their religion and to have their day in court, not always because we love their claim, but because we want the courts to uphold these strong standards. But in this case, we teamed up with uh, Professor UVA, Doug Laycock, who's um, one of the most respected religious freedom professors and advocates before the court, to say this is a bridge too far. So our, our brief says that you shouldn't trigger the statute. There's no substantial burden when the government is going after a secular insurance company um, to provide this service, that that is, cannot be a legal substantial burden. So what we're saying here is that the law, unlike what we might say from a religious perspective, has to draw lines that make sense and that work and that have limits. So we're not saying that the religious organizations don't have a sincere belief that according to their religion, they're doing something wrong. 
they have, they have that. But the law has to draw these lines. The second part of our brief um, addresses a particular argument that the petitioners make, the religious organizations make, that really would unravel the whole set of exemptions. They say because some churches were exempted in a different way, they were totally exempt with no effort to go after their employees. The government drew a, a small circle around a subset of employee of organizations um, that that the government had to do that for everyone. So they basically said because you made an exemption, you clearly don't have a compelling interest. So it's an argument that would do away with the ideas of uh, with the idea that government should have specific um, exemptions for religious organizations. So it's, a, it's an interesting case, it's a difficult case. As I said, it involves, um, I, don't know that, I don't know if it involves any Mississippi plaintiffs. There was a Fifth Circuit decision that came down on the government side. As I said, seven, court, seven circuits, now eight circuits, um, said no, that's too far. The, this is not a substantial burden. One circuit went the other way, um, and we'll have a decision on that late in June. So does any of this stuff happen in Mississippi? What is the law in Mississippi? Mississippi's constitution also protects the free exercise of religion and the establishment clause. I mean, it, I'm sorry, no establishment of religion. Um, it also has a no religious test for office provision. It also has provision that the Holy Bible can't be excluded from the public schools. I didn't know the Holy Bible would be excluded from the schools. I'm not sure exactly what that, what that means. But um, I wanted you to know that you have comparable um, provisions to the federal constitution and you have this um, you have examples of what I was talking about about specific exemptions like the one that was provided for religious organizations in the contraceptive mandate case and general ones you do have a state RIFRA um, and I, I had the pleasure of being in contact with some in this room and others who were active in that debate to talk through not only the substance of the law, but a lot of the conversations around that, where there was a lot of, um, a lot of misunderstand uh, misunderstandings and misinterpretations. In the end, the version of RIFRA was not nearly as bad as the one that was originally pushed and not as bad as the opponents um, thought. It's another reason you shouldn't overstate your case, because when you lose, you're stuck with what you said. <laughs> and you don't, want, you don't want the worst meaning of the statute to be out there for people to think that, um, an idea that you perpetuated when you're going to uh, lose. I, don't, I didn't find any referred cases yet in Mississippi. I haven't found any, um, any challenges. Uh, people, you know, I, I, I don't think there have been any really big religious freedom problems in Mississippi. I don't know of any minority communities that were suffering. I didn't know any, certainly anything from the Christian majority that was suffering that needed a RIFRA at this time when you already had high protection in your constitution. Um, and you did not rush to do this back in 97 when other states were doing that, when they were concerned about just the general standard. But it, it seemed to be part of this reaction to uh, growing um, protections for gays and lesbians, although I don't think that was happening in Mississippi. Um, <clears throat> so you have, you have those protections. You have specific religious exemption. You have a religious exemption to a voter ID law. That is probably not required, but it was something that is a permissive, um, a permissive exemption that you have as an example of that. So quite specifically, your legislature, just like Congress, can decide these things and protect religious freedom in specific ways. Um, Right now in Mississippi, you're dealing with what many states are dealing with, which some, um, and which lead, that's leading to this, what I said is a, um, a crisis in religious freedom language, and that is uh, something called a Pastor Protection Act. And another thing that is often called First Amendment Defense Act, but I think yours may not be called that. But these are generally, um, attempts to provide protection in places where it's not needed um, and in reaction to fears about the rights of others. So that's going on now. And it's questionable about whether those statutes would go so far 
in the idea that they're protecting someone's free exercise right, that they actually would probably violate the Establishment Clause. Um, I think this church would know very well, this educated congregation would know that pastors don't need protection on issues of marriage. Churches, and if, anywhere, if anyone has a wide variety of churches, this place does, right? You have churches different places, different, uh, with different traditions and different um, values and ways of conducting marriage. And that's something that churches decide for themselves. Nothing has changed in the law that would make a pastor uh, marry someone or um, change their rules. So those are kinds of legislation that are, that are pending that are unnecessary, questionable, probably unconstitutional. And then I think I'll end on something because I like ending on interesting, surprising things about Mississippi. And as we talk about um, Mississippi being an example of, of some of these basic ideas, um, you might recall that there was uh, a religious liberty, sort of religious liberty, it really didn't come out of religious liberty, uh, flurry when there was an outbreak of, what was it, at Disney World, the, out, the outbreak because people weren't vaccinating their kids. It was, was it measles? Measles, yeah, something that it was, I can't think of it. It's been eradicated, <laughs> um, but it's back because people aren't vaccinating their kids. And so um, a lot of people turned and tried to blame religious people, the religious exemptions. It turns out, of course, it's not that, but it was um, other, other reasons that people were seeking not to vaccinate their kids. And I learned that Mississippi was the only state that did not have a religious exemption for vaccination. And there's this great quote in a case called Brown versus Stone that shows there are, I guess this can give us hope, right? Because you hear so many crazy things. I went back and read the letters in the RIFRA debate in, in Mississippi, and you have to read them two or three times to know who's talking about what, the way they're throwing around discrimination and liberty in ways that are, that are so backwards that you have to wait and say, now who's being hurt how, and let's get, get this straight. Um, but I'm hopeful that we'll eventually get back to a place of common sense and that we can um, cool down and maybe we can work on trying to understand each other. And there may be areas of law where we do have specific exemptions we can work out. That has happened in cases in, in um, states that passed same-sex marriage laws before the court mandated it. Every state that passed same-sex marriage, civil protections for same-sex marriage, was clear to make, make clear that there were limits to that as far as any impact on um, clergy and houses of worship, even though that wasn't necessary, that was something that they did. So there are things to be worked out, but here's, here's a, a statement of sort of uh, where, where you get, to, in uh, Brown versus Stone, the court said, is it mandated by the First Amendment to the United States Constitution that innocent children, too young to decide for themselves, are to be denied the protection against crippling and death that immunization provides because of a religious belief adhered to by a parent or parents? So they just put the question out there. It's a, no. That was the end of the story. Um, I say that just to say that, there, that this area, um, there are many different ways states can respond. I don't know how active uh, any of you are in, your, in these state efforts. It's, um, as far as direct advocacy or just the conversations that you have, but I encourage you um, because you are people who know what religious liberty is, who knows uh, where it came from, and you have a full idea of what that is, and yet one that is grounded also in the American tradition that can be sustained, and that has been sustained all these years, and we have that responsibility to uh, continue to exercise our rights responsibly if we're gonna have that kind of freedom in the future. So I have time now. If you have a few questions, we can do that. Can I yeah. Two quick things. Okay. One, there are a lot of municipal meetings, like in Flowood, for example, and half the council teaches Sunday school, and they open with a prayer. Mm -hmm. Is that illegal, or the fact that no one has complained about it? In the, it's a city council meeting, city government right. meeting. So that. That is a practice where they probably were a little bit nervous before the court decided Greece v. Galloway, and they were hoping nobody would sue, and now they're probably safe in doing that. that that's what the court held in Greece v. Galloway. The court held that, um, that, that it was, 
and it depends on the facts. There could still be a case against that, depending on how, uh, how what the facts of that case are. But generally, where a, a, a government, local government meeting has some kind of prayer practice where it is not discriminatory in who can pray, there has to be at least some uh, fair way in, in having different people pray. They can't say anyone who um, goes to a church but no one who goes to a mosque. They couldn't do something like that. Have, they've got to have some kind of general way of making that um, happen, but it's probably going to be upheld. That case was so um, interesting because the court split 5-4, and it was kind of along religious lines with the religious minorities in the dissent. And it just had, uh, I was very close to the case because friends of ours and another organization represented the plaintiffs, and so I got to hear a lot about the factual information. I got to go to the moot courts, and um, and we filed a brief to support theirs. Um, and the court, in reading the opinion, you could just see that the two sides of the court had different views of the facts. For the minority, for those in the dissent, it was clearly they were being asked to participate in something that, that their rights of citizenship were being held, to, you know, according to this religious test. And those in the majority said it was just a part of our political fabric and recognition of religion society, so more akin to a, um, a, a political ceremony. So, oh, but one thing they, they didn't say you have to pray at your local government meeting, so you don't have to. Yeah. At the prison. Right. So if, if the government just bought a, put a church up here on this block, that would be a problem with that. Um, the prisons can do, and I don't, I don't know about, I, I'm not familiar with that case, but generally, um, they do it, yeah. But generally, um, the government can, just like they can pay prison chaplains, um, we don't, the government doesn't pay our uh, private ministers, but they pay for prison chaplains. That's to provide uh, religious freedom because they're, situation is confined, they would have no religious freedom otherwise. So, so the government can, in that way, spend money toward religion, but it's only so that there can be um, that opportunity, and there should be no coercion, there has to be, it has to be responsive to the prison uh, population generally, so it's, it's a responsiveness, um, not the government providing and pushing that. Yeah. Well, and, and sometimes you see fact scenarios like that because something's on the line and they think that will help you know, if that, they'll, they'll help it to say the government's um, not sponsoring it if it's paid for with private funds. That doesn't usually work, and in, in that case, I'm not sure if that's, if that would be necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else have a question? Oh, see you in. So, so, so um, obviously, religion in the public schools is a great is a big area where we could have used that to illustrate free exercise and no establishment. And no establishment means that the government and the government uh, means local governments and the government means public schools and public school teachers can't advance religion. That's a violation of the establishment clause. And actually, the court cases are pretty clear on that, although we know that they are not self-enforcing. And so depending on where you are in the country, uh, there may be more uh, promotion of religion in the schools than otherwise. Um, a lot of the law on religion in public schools talks about the young 
tender minds of, and the uh, compulsory school laws, two things that are not present once you're in the college level. So that's a reason that the ACLU doesn't have time for that case is because it's less likely to be a winner. Um, it's not clear. It's still a, a, a public university should not be promoting prayer. Um, but given Grease v. Galloway, the, the local government case, and giving this difference between elementary and secondary school and colleges, um, it, it's a hard case to win. And so, I mean, the other, an the other answer is in a situation like that, um, you know, sometimes this actually leads to conversations and changes in practice. It's not easy, but sometimes that happens where people discuss why do we have this practice? Did you know this was, uh, you know, this is not shared by everyone here? Do you realize that um, we're not all bound together by our religious views? Um, Cliff, you got some stories about that, right? Um, you know, there are certain settings where it's quite presumptuous, you know, to think that everyone would be praying together, and that's typically the case when you're in a public school setting or a government meeting, because that's usually not why you're brought together. So, and I don't know about, does anybody here work for Northwest Rankin? Isn't that the, that's the school that's, that's the, the, or the district that's been sued, we got a consent order, and then we got, had to go back into court because they did something in violation of it. So I'm following that, and I started to call somebody at the, um, at the other, at the organization that's suing, see so if I could get any information, but I figured they wouldn't trust me, they'd think I was getting information for the other side. Um, but anyway, I, I do hope that there's eventually some learning from that. Uh, I think it's really unfortunate when public school teachers as part of the Christian majority, kind of feed this idea that the rules of no establishment are somehow harmful to Christians, uh, when in fact, as we talked about the history, uh, they were promoted by Christians so that religion can be free, freely exercised, flourish in its own merits, without coercion of civil government, public school teachers. Um, uh, but I understand that, that is, that's always part of the part of the debate when you're in a, uh, uh, an area that doesn't have a lot of religious diversity. So, yeah, Max. Yeah. Well, on, on the whole issue of what religious liberty means, you mean the whole crux of this, this talk? I think we're just kind of in the beginning. I mean, we're in the beginning of it. I, um, in thinking about preparing to talk to you, I was just thinking about being kind of in the details and the weeds, and I was trying to come out and say, what are the big issues? I mean, the big problem is that people are yelling religious freedom, and, and now people now people feel like they can't be for it. <laughs> it's it's really sad, but I had, a, I had some legislators from, from West Virginia call me the other day, and um, they said, we got this letter. We, we've been, we know your work, and we count on you, and we got this letter from the Catholic Conference that quotes you as being for this religious freedom bill. You can't be for that. I was like, hmm. And, and we, it took a while, it took a while to say, and, and, it, and the letter actually, it was actually taking something and putting it in another context, and we're not pushing for state religious freedom laws right now. In West Virginia, the only people that were pushing for that state religious freedom law were doing that because there were a couple of cities that now had protections for gays and lesbians uh, against, they had, they had protection um, for them in the workplace, you know, to, to protect against um, uh, discrimination in the workplace. Mm -hmm. So there's some really interesting things uh, going, going on. I, every once in a while I get hopeful because I'll meet someone who's been through these battles and you'll see someone who recognizes that their right that they really care about does not need to harm this other person's right. And sometimes they like surprise each other and say, wait a minute, why don't we protect your right and then we protect this right, let's do this together. Um, I'm not real hopeful that that's happening a lot just based upon what I know from the leaders of these groups. Um, but I think, you know, we, we might get there and I think, um, you know, things are happening as cases go through. On, on, the, on other more narrow topics, there are some great resources. On religion in public schools, there's been quite a bit of work on consensus guidelines and what you can and can't do. Um, but it, it appears that there's no end of uh, situations people are, are willing to try to sort of push the boundaries there. Yeah, one more. Yeah. Did I ever, I didn't even say it, did I? No, but it's not really part of the First Amendment, but 
Some people say that. So I don't, I still use the term separation of church and state, but I don't overuse it. Uh, but we often say that we support religious liberty and its constitutional corollary, sometimes called the separation of church and state, which is just a shorthand for no establishment and free exercise, right? It's uh, that, that whole idea means that there are these, these separate the separate spheres um, for religion and government, um, but because it's a barrier for people, you know, I don't often use it, and I think it's, uh, it's because it came from a wall metaphor, a wall separating the church and state. Um, of course, those Baptist historians among you know that the first use of that wall metaphor was from Roger Williams, who was Baptist for a while, and he talked about separating uh, the wilderness, the, the garden of the church from the wilderness of the world. And so he had that metaphor that was way before Thomas Jefferson, um, much less the ACLU people blame for having this uh, idea that things are walled off. But the idea that, that uh, religion and government could be totally walled off I think is offensive to some, and it doesn't really capture um, the way religion and government interact. We have these boundaries, but there is some area where um, there's interaction, and obviously there's a lot of religion that is free and flowing in public life, and so long as it's not government-sponsored, we shouldn't be fighting about it. So thank you. David. How about the Kentucky situation? Oh. The county court kind of deal. Yeah. Because in Mississippi, it's just dealing now with the religious freedom piece. Yes. I bet that's probably part of that, one of those acts. Um, yes. So what did y'all think when someone said, Chuck, did you know someone said that Kim Davis was the first time a Christian had been jailed for her beliefs? The country, our, that shows that our country's really gone because we're starting to jail Christians for their belief. Our country needs a Baptist history lesson. People have been jailed for their beliefs, their beliefs about baptism, the beliefs about what the Bible says, about what they're called to preach and teach. But Kim Davis was not jailed until she stood in the way, not of herself signing the, just signing the, the, the paperwork, but saying none of her deputies could. Yeah. Um, it's a really tricky uh, proposition to provide a religious exemption for someone in that kind of government capacity where their job is to, um, to provide marriage. So uh, I've been in debates with people who, do, who care about this area of law and have different perspectives on whether or not she, she, acting alone on herself, could have a Religious Freedom Restoration Act claim if they had one in Kentucky. Um, but I guarantee she doesn't have one to not act and to prevent all the people who work for her from not acting when there is now a constitutional right for all people who are to present themselves for marriage and be licensed in Kentucky. So I, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to settle down or if um, it's going to keep on. But I, I think um, we'll keep seeing the action for a while, and in particularly probably in an election year, uh, there'll be a lot of talk about that. So thank you. Thank you, thank you, Holly, and thanks to all of you for being here. Um, I want to, uh, for a moment, uh, offer some words of appreciation to uh, our Adult Ministries Committee, and particularly to uh, the co-chairs of the Adult Ministries Committee, Max Arinder and Joanne Ratliff, uh, for putting in place all the infrastructure uh, for for our gathering, um, uh, Amy uh, Finkelberg also, uh, who uh, was still in her role as our associate pastor for adults when, uh, when our committee uh, uh, invited Holly to come. And uh, so Amy has had lots of important work uh, behind the scenes uh, helping us uh, get ready for this weekend. So to, to Amy, and to Max and Joanne and to all the members of the Adult Ministries Committee, many thanks for many hours and much preparation. And Holly, thank you for being with us, helping us think about enormously important and complex issues that are part of life for all of us. Um, tomorrow, uh, as is our practice, 
uh, with our uh, annual lecture series. Holly will preach the sermon in the worship service tomorrow morning. And then we'll come over here for lunch. And then after lunch, we will have the concluding lecture and time for conversation and question and answer. So uh, now this evening, our adult ministries committee has prepared for us this beautiful food and a time of reception and conversation. And I'm sure uh, there'll be opportunities if you want to ask Holly questions or continue conversation with her as we fellowship together here in the Great Hall. Uh, let us uh, close our uh, time together in this way in prayer. Eternal and loving God, we give you thanks for this beautiful day. We thank you that at sunset we can be together and think together. We thank you, God, for all of those uh, who have forged for us uh, the freedom to be who we are and think what we think and worship as we worship. Uh, we think uh, per with particular gratitude of our Baptist forebears uh, who uh, spent time uh, in jail and put their lives at risk and felt the whip on the back for the sake of religious freedom for all. And so we remember with gratitude those who came before us on whose uh, shoulders we stand and in whose shadow we rest. We pray your blessing upon us all as we go, and we pray that we will rest well tonight. Uh, through Christ our Lord. Amen.